Hi, welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And apparently we're switching up the intros to keep everyone on their toes because we are bringing an episode to you, one that we've never done before. And it is a live episode. And by that, it's not like, hey, we're sitting here talking live real time, but we recorded this episode in front of a room full of people at the Denver Women's March on January 18th, 2020. Yes. Was it the what? 17th? No, it was the 18th. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's already so long ago. I know, a whole few days. <laughs> I was really, first of all, incredibly honored to be asked by the board of the Women's March to come do a live segment and an event for people. I thought they did an incredible job of like moving from an event that is just people showing up, marching, and leaving to an event that really engages people in the local community. They opened an expo. I think they said within the first 15 minutes, it was full to capacity with over 1,200 people. Even when we walked through that area over an hour later, which is like well into lunchtime when people should have been somewhere else eating, it was packed. And we came across some incredible platforms that I didn't know existed and opened my eyes to other perspectives that I, and assumptions that I had made. And so, I don't know, I thought that was really incredible. What did you think? I mean, it was very powerful. I did not think that I would be spending, I would say that I stood in a yurt that as part cool. of the Women's March, but that was super powerful because the yurt was designed so you write your wishes for the world and you tie your wish on the yurt, which as coming from the Japanese culture of temples and shrines, I was immediately down with that concept. But then they said, if you stand outside the yurt, you'll feel one way, but you need to go inside the yurt and then you will feel something different. And remember when you and I walked in there and the energy shifted and, you know, I'm not a person who uses the words energy shift lightly. <laughs> so, but I think it just, it harnessed the power of what we can do when people are fired up and how many options there are for collective action and how we need these moments of solidarity and growth together and sitting with each other and just being to know that we're not alone in what we're talking about. You're not alone in what you think and that there is power in the group. I love that. And so with that, let's tune in to our live episode where we talk about women needing to look out for other women first before anything else. Welcome to the live recording of the Dear White Women podcast, which is a social justice podcast where we have uncomfortable conversations every week about everything we can think of, about race, about gender, sexual identity, discrimination, hate, love, everything in between. We introduced ourselves before, but for those listening on the podcast, I'm Sarah. I'm Misasha. And we are two half-Japanese, half-white best friends who met when we were undergrads at Harvard as we walked out of a racial identity meeting. I mean, we had no idea at the time that you fast-forward several decades and we'd be sitting here having conversations on a podcast from Colorado and California in the hopes of leaving the world a little bit better for our children, our very mixed-race children. And I think the answer to the question we were talking about, or I mentioned before, about how do we know what's best for everybody, is that we need to talk. We need to talk about it, and we need to listen. And we were asked by the board today to talk about Me Too and this idea of victim shaming. And we don't plan to talk about it in the way that is typically portrayed in the media right now. Basically, we are here to state that we believe that we need to align not as white people first, we need to align as women first. Our kids are not safe until our women are all safe. 
So let's go into some of the specifics. When you typically picture a survivor of sexual assault, who do you imagine in your mind? And was that person Chanel Miller? Was that who you thought Emily Doe was when you first heard her story? And incidentally, did you know that five years today was when Chanel Miller woke up in the hospital the morning after her sexual assault on the Stanford campus? So let's unpack all of that a little. There was a great New York Times article that came out in September of last year when Chanel Miller's Know My Name memoir came out. And this article was written by an Asian American woman. And she stated, when I learned Ms. Miller is white and Chinese American, I'd first assumed that Emily Doe was white a reminder of how often we internalize whiteness as a default in America. Ms. Miller is more than her racial identity alone, but the knowledge that she is Asian American necessitates a new understanding of what she experienced and how she was perceived as a woman of color, assaulted by a white man, trying to obtain justice in a courtroom presided over by a white male judge. When sentencing Mr. Turner, who was a student at Stanford at the time of the assault, the legal system took into account his athletic and academic achievements. In her statement, Ms. Miller challenged this approach, writing, if a first-time offender from an underprivileged background was accused of three felonies and displayed no accountability for his actions other than drinking, what would his sentence be? Mr. Turner's treatment during the case and his light sentence quickly became a symbol for many of elite, white, male privilege. Judge Persky, who was a Stanford alumnus, was criticized as seeing Mr. Turner as entitled to future professional achievements. In contrast, Ms. Miller, who had not attended Stanford, had had her own achievements dismissed and her history attacked, her, quote, lost potential not highlighted in the courtroom. And in her memoir, Know My Name, Ms. Miller writes about how growing up Asian American had made her feel, quote, used to being unseen, to never being fully known. It did not feel possible that I could be the protagonist. Do you remember Brock Turner and that case? I mean, that's incredible. You just finished reading her memoir on the plane over here. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a powerful piece. I mean, I think you were saying you would like to recommend this as a must read for people who are interested in this. I think it addresses so much more. It not only takes you into her mind and her process, but she speaks for so many people in so many different ways. And the way that she tells her story and the fact that she didn't remember her assault and people are trying to tell her that this is what happened to her and how she was treated as a victim, as a survivor, how the court system failed her along the way, how her advocates had failed her in some ways and how others stood up for her when she thought no one was going to be able to stand up for her. And she wasn't sure she could stand up for herself. So yeah, such a powerful book. Cool. Another example of this sort of stuff, one of the best closing arguments ever, even if it was in a movie, and even if it was from 1996, how many have heard of A Time to Kill? Remember that? Okay, Matthew McConaughey plays a lawyer named Jake Brigance. He was defending a black man who was accused of killing the two white racist men who brutally raped and murdered his 10-year-old daughter. And he's defending this man. He's a white actor, a white, you know, playing a white lawyer, defending this man in the Deep South. And his closing argument in this trial is basically the last chance he knows to get any sort of empathy from the jury. And so he tells them a story. And if you haven't seen the movie, you can actually go online and see the seven-minute clip of just the closing arguments. It's really powerful. It can be triggering. So just a heads up about that. But the gist of it is he tells this all-white jury to close their eyes and has them imagine all of the terrible things that were done to this 10-year-old girl and this 10-year-old black girl. And once he's described everything, 
there's this huge pause. And what has now been come to say, like, be called a mic drop moment, he goes, now imagine she's white. And everybody in the movie, their eyes shoot open because they realize how powerful that statement is in imagining the level of empathy and understanding the crime that had happened. So it's powerful. I would really recommend watching that. I did it again in prep for this, and I was just as shocked as I was when I watched it the first time. They do show it in certain law schools as well as just one of those powerful turning moments. And it's one of my husband's I think top 10 movie moments ever as well. But that moment is so important because the painful truth about women in this country is that we do see women of different races differently regardless of situation. These stereotypes start young and affect how we treat women of different races when they are victims of sexual assault. As Soraya Chamali wrote in her amazing book, Rage Becomes Her, quote, before accusations of angry black women are used to stereotype, silence, and police women, they are used to penalize girls. Starting in early childhood, adults see black girls as less innocent or less in need of nurturing or protection. Starting in kindergarten, black girls are significantly more likely to be disciplined, suspended, or expelled at between, depending on where they live, five to seven times the rate of their peers. Five to seven times. I mean, Latina girls are more likely to face dismissal when they, quote, act out. Mainstream people often do not hear what we are saying, writes Eden E. Torres in Chicano Without Apology, because they are listening to us through stereotypes that paint us as hot-blooded and explosive. Girls of Asian descent, on the other hand, are more often to encounter the expectation that they will, quote, naturally be quiet and agreeable. Ha. My mom was not that Asian woman, but that's a different But story. that stereotype is there, right? <laughs> yeah, the stereotype yeah. is totally there. And living in Japan, yeah. I was exposed to that too, for sure. Yeah. And given how all of this juxtaposed against all of this is our stereotype regarding white women and how femininity has been weaponized in a way that alienates women of color, the need to protect white women portrayed as frail, innocent, and defenseless is a centuries-old justification for terroristic racist violence. And this can be seen in the news, it can be seen in the media, and so many sources, even in the present day. But what are the statistics? It's one thing to talk about the emotion and the perception. What are the stats? We pulled this from a source called End Rape on Campus. While 80% of rapes are reported by white women, women of color are more likely to be assaulted than white women. Native American women, mixed race women, black women, all have higher prevalence rates of rape than white women. And yet, when we thought about the victim of Brock Turner, when I've spoken to friends about this, almost all of us, I think every one of us that I've spoken to assumed it was a white woman until I was told otherwise. When we think about victims, the default narrative is often that of a white woman. Did you know, though, as a total side note, but relevant to this, that the Me Too movement was actually around before celebrities started talking about it back in 2018? Right. Me Too was coined by Tarana Burke, who is black. And she was doing that in 2003 while working at Just Be, Inc., which is a nonprofit she had. And she was talking about it when she was in a conversation with a girl who revealed that she had been sexually abused by her mother's boyfriend. And she's fishing around for the right words, like how do you have empathy for a girl who's telling you this? And basically ever since, Tarana Burke has used the phrase, you're not alone, this happened to Me Too. In other words, Me Too was originally about protecting black girls, black women. So you can imagine how surprised Tarana Burke must have been when she saw her phrase in a tweet by Alyssa Milano and shocked by the enormous momentum it gained. I think it got more than 12 million people across social media platforms within a few days. 
And in that instant, it went from a concept focused on black girls to something that really predominantly centers around the narratives of white women and publicized for white women. And so we absolutely see the need for that, and there continues to be a fundamental problem there. But we're not here today necessarily to talk about the highly publicized Me Too moments that are occurring right now with Harvey Weinstein's current trial, or you know, involved Matt Lauer, where largely the victims are white women, either Rich in reality, women, right? Yeah, or in our imagination. But what about if the victims are black? At this time, for every one African American woman who reports her rape. 15 other black women do not. And why is that? Writer Shanita Hubbard in late 2017 gave this explanation. We've seen the unchecked power of white men ravish our communities, and we carry the message of not right now when it comes to addressing our pain if the offender is black. And that's because of the outsized threat to black boys and men of violence and incarceration in this country. It can inhibit black girls and women from coming forward, especially in the light of Me Too. When your community fights for those same people who terrorize you, it sends a very complicated and mixed message that your pain is not a priority. And while this issue transcends all women, it presents specific issues when you think about it with regards to women of color. And as Gabrielle Union noted when the Me Too movement was rising, it may not have changed many things regarding how black women and other women of color are unable to speak as openly, and their stories were less likely to be told or believed, including by other women. The floodgates have opened, she agreed, but cautioned, primarily for white women. Because let's think about it, what happens when you are assaulted and you go to the police? Are you treated the same if you're a white woman or as a woman of color? The news highlights how that difference can be deadly. For example, if you think about Sandra Bland, who was pulled over for a minor traffic stop and found hanging in her cell three days later. But there are other examples of black women or women of color being stopped, strip searched, including in their body cavities, including their vaginas, and sometimes without officers bothering to even use clean gloves. So my question is, so what? I mean, I look around this room, I think about the people listening on our show. I'm really glad to see some diversity here, but it is still a room primarily of white people. Why should white people care? Women of color are victims too, but here's the question, do they get the same justice? Are we as women all treated the same way? Because if all women are to be put first and our whiteness is to be put second, we should all be getting the same justice. But the reality is we are approaching it along color lines. There is a division, there is a difference in this country. If you think about reflecting on your own personal experience, but do we get as angry when it's a white male perpetrator? Do we feel the same level of empathy when it's a poor black woman who's the victim? Do we even hear about it if it's a black victim, a black woman? Do we, you know, encourage any outrage over it? Because, or do we come up with some sort of excuse like, oh, there's a mitigating factor. That woman maybe was poor or shouldn't have been wearing that or was in the wrong place. At the, you, do we find excuses within ourselves about why we don't believe that other narrative? And to be clear, there are people who think that, I mean, in the context of women's equality, if you bring up the race issue, and you're making it divisive. We believe that if you say that, it's the same as saying we don't see color, we don't see race. Sexism is always mediated by other factors, your money, your race, your class, your ability level, your gender identity, it is always a lot of stuff going on. And so if you believe that bringing up that issue of race when it comes to gender equality is not right, maybe you're not seeing your own privilege. And I would just like to have people think about that because it might be coming up for somebody here. It's okay to acknowledge that and sit with it and process that. It's not gonna be comfortable, but change never comes from complacency. 
it's important to challenge that about yourself or about people around you if you think that that's what they're saying too. So back to Brock Turner for a second. Would Brock Turner's punishment have been more severe than given everything we've just talked about if Chanel Miller was a white woman? As it was, that original sentence, he was sentenced to just six months in jail by a judge who explained that anything longer would have had a severe impact on him. His father asserted that it was a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action. He was out of jail in three months, his name put on a sex offender's registry. And at one point, and this is when I completely, my eyes rolled all the way back in my head, he offered to go on a college speaking tour to lecture college students about the dangers of drinking and promiscuity. Again, we're, we're my eyes still might right not now, have But our reaction was not clean. <laughs> no. And so Chanel Miller says, when I read the probation officer's report, I was in disbelief, consumed by anger as we all should be. Our current system is designed to protect the perpetrators, especially the white ones. From Chanel Miller's website in talking about her specific case, it was the perfect case in so many ways, so true. There were eyewitnesses, Turner ran away, physical evidence was immediately secured, but Chanel Miller's struggles with isolation and shame during the aftermath and the trial reveal the oppression victims face even in the best case scenarios. Her story illuminates a culture biased to protect perpetrators, indicts a criminal justice system designed to fail the most vulnerable. If we are going to flip this around, if we are going to change this, we need to see each other as women first and stand up together for all of our benefit. We need to form alliances. And I think it's fair to say our rights are under attack as women. I don't know how, I mean, I'm the one in this duo that's more prone to drama, but I don't know how overly dramatic it would be to state that we're maybe heading into a war, so to speak, to fight for our reproductive rights, to fight to be free to walk around in our bodies, to fight for justice for offenses to our minds and bodies. I think that's true, considering what the Supreme Court is hearing in March. I think it's very true, and it's very immediate. Yep. Right? And in times of war, if you think about history, alliances are powerful. Whether their alliances are formal or informal commitments, I mean, they're a commitment to secure cooperation between two or more states. And I pulled this definition from heritage.org, but although the precise arrangements embodied in different alliances vary enormously, the defining feature of any alliance is a commitment for mutual military support against some external actors in some specified set of circumstances. So... Our specified set of circumstances are the justice system that is not committed to preventing or you know, protecting women, but of protecting perpetrators first. We can make a commitment to mutually support women of all shades of brown together. And we can win the war. As white people, we need to be allies. I mean, to see and use our power, because let's not be mistaken, as white people, we have more power in this country the way it is set right now. And we can advocate and I say we loosely because I am still half Asian, not just all white, but to advocate for people who have less power. And to start, we need to listen. The victim's perspective is different than that of people who've never been abused or assaulted. Their worldview changes if they have been a victim. And so it's something we need to sit with, hear, be uncomfortable with, and accept. There was a psychologist who wrote something back in 1977, and she said to hold someone else's anger involves being able to hear and listen without being defensive. Since a great deal of black women's anger is directed at white women, both past and present, this can be hard for white women to do. This was true in 1977, and it's true today in 2020. And it's especially important to do this now because we're in a world where we're increasingly living in separate spheres. 
We have bubbles. It's often those separate spheres when you don't talk, when you don't listen, you don't interact, that allows us to continue. I mean, we had a conversation about this, but I think it's a largely masculine belief that women's anger is somehow not legitimate, especially when it comes to women of color. We saw this in the 2016 election, and the I can grab her by the comments from our now president. It was stuck in my mind. It made me angry. It made a lot of women angry. But even with that anger, even when this comment was ranked in the top five trending topics for women, 44% of college-educated white women still voted for Trump. This contrasts with 90% of black women voting for Clinton. That's just so striking. I don't have any other words for that except that. And it goes back to, again, I clearly can't recommend this book enough, but in Know My Name, when Chanel Miller's talking about the story of her trial, she tells this very specific anecdote about when the DA told her that women aren't preferred on juries of rape cases because they're likely to resist empathizing with the victim, insisting there must be something wrong with her because that would never happen to me. And this cannot be a case of us versus them. And that's why we need to be allies in order to have a unified front. Part of our allyship lies in voting. I mean, when we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, thinking about the broader issues, thinking about what is the betterment of society as a whole beyond what's just good for people who are like me in every way we can define likeness. So to do that, we need to educate ourselves about others. A white woman's voice can be even more powerful if we hear how other people's voices have been silenced and challenged. And so, to offer an opportunity to listen to a different narrative, we'd like to welcome a special guest, Molly, and we are gonna hear some stories starting right now. Come on up, Molly. Molly, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? So my name is Mary Ryan on social media. I am also known as Molly Ryan Kills Enemy, and my Lakota name is Chiante Okichi Uyewi, which means do work from the heart woman. So I am a survivor of domestic violence, sexual assault, and sexual abuse, all from the same person that I considered my significant other at one point in my life. Can you tell us about your experience with the justice system? So I want to tell you guys my story because I'm not looking for validation and I'm not looking, I'm not seeking pity. What I am wanting as a Lakota woman who is indigenous to this land is that we acknowledge the colonial violence that happens on this land, my homeland, the continual atrocities that happen. So I've been a survivor for quite a few years. I walked away from a domestic violence situation. It was about nine years ago. Our abuser is walking free to this day after abusing me, after abusing all five of my children. And what I have today is that I pick up the pieces. I pick up the trauma. I pick up the abuse and the behaviors that we picked up from our own abuser. I have to accept the fact I have an adult son who is sitting in prison because the justice system didn't want to address the traumas. They didn't want to address the abuse that happened to my family. So instead of addressing that, 
they recognized my son's negative behavior. And that's all that they addressed. No one wanted to acknowledge that this man abused every single person in my household and that every child admitted they talked about what happened, what this person did to them. And having the courts just continue to look past that. Well, you know, you're doing this. And having the courts at one point when our case opened, they called me mental. I had a caseworker come over to my home and she broke me down. She tried to break me down and continued to tell me and ask me and question me about why they were removing my children. She told me in great detail how the next day I would come home and I would pack my two little ones' belongings. I would pack their favorite clothes, I'd pack their favorite toys, their favorite blankets. And I knew I understood that she was breaking me down. And her final conversation was, do you know why we're doing this to you? And I said, no, I actually don't know. And she says, because you're a mental. And I said, no, I'm not mental, I have mood disorders. And she continued to argue with me that I was mental, I couldn't take care of my kids. I couldn't do this. My behavior was erratic. And yes, it was erratic because I had my gas tank, people messing with my car, my gas tank becoming detached from my car. And it was, you know, the abusive behaviors, the crazy making, and I was crazy. And I had one person in my life, who is my oldest daughter, who kept me, she was the only one who could be my voice at that time because I was in so much trauma and no one wanted to open their eyes to it. They wanted to point out my negative behavior. I was crazy, I was mental, but no one wants, except for my attorney, she understood what was going on. And there were multiple times that I, they tried to admit me to a psych unit because I was crazy, because I was mental. Not looking at the trauma that was happening in front of everyone, in front of law enforcement, in front of the judicial system, in front of child protection services. This was all happening. And not once did anyone turn around and say, this is trauma. They're living in trauma. Our homes, every home we went to was broken into. Nothing was ever stolen. We had expensive electronics in our homes. Nothing was ever stolen. But the message that I got was that he found us. He knew where we were. And, you know, this part of my story is when they finally closed the case, and sent us on our way, the consolation that they gave me was that you have your children. 10 years later, as my children get older, those memories continue. And so I have to, as their parent, it is my responsibility to help them, to recognize what is going on. That's not a consolation for me. You know, I am raising my children the best way I can but it isn't a consolation, it isn't a prize, simply because we are still 
manipulated by the abuser. He still figures out a way to get to my kids or to me through social media. And it re-triggers everyone in the family. And why do I constantly have to protect myself and my children because the judicial system and law enforcement will not do their jobs. Can you tell the story about the 911? So it was our second home we had moved into. The first time I had to call 911, we came home and someone had actually shook my door, our front door, which was locked and deadbolted, jiggled the handle off of it. And I called 911 and they came and if you're a survivor, if you're a victim of domestic violence, there's your red flag, there's an abuser involved. And so they came out, they checked everything, it was fine. A week later, I came home, my door had been pushed in. We had a two-floor apartment, and on each side we had doors to balconies. So this became a regular habit that our home was being broken into, and it got to the point where we didn't want to go home because I didn't know if he was going to be sitting inside. And so the habit was is the kids would stay in the car with the dog. I would have a baseball bat, and I would go in, and I would check everywhere. And we came home one night, and I had to go to the bathroom, so I go flying up the stairs, and I'm going to the bathroom, I look over, and there's a door, the balcony door is wide open. And I slunk back downstairs, and I grabbed a bat, and I called 911, and I said, our door's wide open on the second floor. And when we went and looked, oh, when I called, the lady who took the call, she let me know that I had called too many times. And pretty soon, uh, law enforcement would not be coming because there were just too many calls. And I said, hey, we're domestic violence survivors, victims, and I've been told to call. I've been instructed by the courts, by law enforcement, by you, that anything that happens, I need to call you. And during that time, we were, he has violated the restraining order multiple times. And we're going through a case here in Denver. And he had his witnesses lie. And when I was sitting in the hall at the Denver courts, they walked in, they turned around, they went right up to the judge and said that I was harassing them. So they removed me. They took me out because I was sitting in the hallway. And that day, because he is such a manipulator, they dropped the charges. He had blatantly come into a place where I was volunteering, had his witnesses circling around trying to intimidate me. He tried to intimidate me, and when he realized that he wasn't gonna intimidate me, he left. And I called the cops, and it was something that I had said that indicated that I was not telling the truth. So they dropped his charges, and that was the day that I stood in those courtrooms, in the courtroom hallways at Denver County, and I had a meltdown. People were coming out of the courtrooms wondering what was going on because I was devastated. And asking the victim's advocates, 
what is it going to take? Is it going to take him killing me because he had threatened my life multiple times? Is it going to take him killing me and my two kids for anyone to wake up and say anything? And I said, I'm not going to let that happen. And so I've been vocal about it since. One of the pieces that we had talked about in our pre-call was that he is, in fact, a white man. He is a white man. He is a meth user. He is a known meth cook. He has charges for cooking meth. He has a long, long history of abusing multiple women. My family just is not the only one. And he continues to be let go. He walks into those courtrooms, he shows up, he's charming, he's wonderful, and they turn around and tell me I have to let him see the kids. Not acknowledging that he is violating restraining orders, not acknowledging that what he is doing is against the law, but allowing him to walk every single time. I think that's so hard and difficult, and I can't imagine what that feels like. You know, there, what you've detailed has been so many different ways in which the system hasn't worked and has failed. And, you know, one of the things that Sarah and I in particular would love to hear you talk about, and, and we understand that you are here speaking about your experiences, not for all Native women, but there are so many barriers to Native women getting justice in assault cases, in DV cases. What are some of those barriers that you see? I believe a lot of it is that we are not acknowledged at this point. Living in a small town, there's a lot of racism. There's a lot of bigotry in our town alone. And people not wanting to acknowledge. I went to a documentary and I had asked a former state rep, what is your, how would you see an acknowledgement of the indigenous people and the current government that we have? And he put everything back on me. And after the end of the documentary, I had several white men (laughs) come up and try to intimidate me. I mean, just got like this, and they were furious that I had asked, you know, how are you gonna, what are we gonna do to repair what's happened to the indigenous people of this land? Because I wanna know, I wanna know how that's gonna happen and what your heart is gonna be. But the, it's indigenous women, we are a matriarchal society. And I believe we were stripped of that when they took our land and they put us onto reservations. And then the missionaries began coming in and stealing our children. And what happened is when they stripped our men of their dignity and their pride, they began the alcoholism. That's when alcoholism happened. When they came in and started stealing the children, That's when the alcoholism became a huge thing in the Native women. And we're stripped of everything. Our voices are, you know, we're considered the backbone of our tribes and our families. And we were stripped of that. 
And, you know, I listen and I try to understand other people's stories and the history of this land. Because to me, this isn't the United States of America. This is Turtle Island to me. And, you know, we had a discussion about the Great Sioux Nation. I am not of the Great Sioux Nation. That is a colonized term for the Lakota people or the Dakota or the Nakota. We're not the Great Sioux Nation. It is a derogatory term for us. And so for women, I believe there's multiple parts to that is we're often told we don't talk about our stories. We don't talk about rape. We don't talk about these issues because the white people did this to us and we don't want them to continue these cycles. I also know that, you know, many of us have been taught we don't, we need to be suspicious of people who come in. For me, I was raised by a white family. I was adopted out, and so my mind is opened a little bit more. I wasn't raised Native. And the people who I love and are hold dear to my heart are white people. So I don't carry the suspiciousness or the animosity that I see a lot. And someone once told me that that was a blessing for me was to have the indigenous roots, have the indigenous culture, have my bloodlines, but to also understand the white world. So I appreciate you sharing so much so far, and I want to just do a quick check. I mean, you didn't go into too many details, but we're talking about someone who survived abuse, rape, assault, and how much empathy do you have right now in your heart? I mean, I'm just asking. I want you to just think about if we were to sit there and talk a little bit more, I feel like we have this empathy. And so here's my next question. And I want you to think about your reaction to this. Can you tell us a little bit about your recovery really briefly from meth and alcohol addiction? So I am a recovering meth addict, and I am also a recovering alcoholic. I have over a decade of clean time and sober sobriety. My healing has been embracing my culture, embracing the ceremonies, embracing anything that is taught to me, I embrace and that's how I live my life. I did do, people once referred to me as being too therapized because I had multiple therapists, multiple counselors, And when I realized that they weren't teaching me the one most important thing, and that was about love, I walked away from all of it, and I embraced my bloodlines and my culture. I love that idea of love. I'm a big fan of that as my mode of living. And so my question to everybody who's listening is, does your perspective change knowing that she was addicted to meth or alcohol? Some people say no. I think the honest answer is sometimes it's yes. I mean, you think not in your case necessarily, but we've done conversations on this show where we talk about criminal justice for young kids. And you're like, well, but they held somebody up with a gun. And you're like, but does the punishment fit the crime? And I think that's the question we need to think about because does having made poor choices or difficult choices or, you know, succumbing to an addiction mean you should not be recognized as a person or get justice in an appropriate way for the situation? It's important to realize our checks. When we hear stories of different people, 
not to say, well, but they did whatever to bring it onto themselves. We need to seek justice for all. My one last question for you, because we're talking about what white women can do also. How do you view the relationship between white women and native women? Or I guess, could you tell the story that you did, one of the things that was most frustrating for you? Or that we could do differently, <laughs> not to put you on the spot. So I want to say is a lot of white women love me because I am open-minded and because I accept people. But when I have a boundary and I set that boundary, that's when I become, oh, she's mean. And I have had many white women, when they hear my story of rape, sexual abuse, domestic violence, those are ugly things to talk about. And we don't talk about it as a society. We don't talk about that stuff. But when it comes to a woman with brown skin or red skin, that is something we don't talk about. And we definitely, we don't want to hear that. And that is what I had been told when I had been invited to present at a conference. Oh, we certainly, we can't have her sharing in a big room. We've got to put her in a small room, put her in the back. We don't want to hear it. But the reality is, is that we need to hear these stories. Because for me, as a matriarch of my family, I need to heal from the colonial violence. I need to be acknowledged and not continue to be this hypersexualized little Indian maiden dressed in nothing but leather and fringe. And so to me, it's important that all women rise together. We listen to each other. We support each other. We encourage each other. We don't silence each other. That's not what it's about. And you know, there are some things that are uncomfortable and we don't want to hear it. We don't want to talk about it, but it's important. It's important to each and every one of our healing process. And I've had to do a lot of healing to walk away from the behaviors that I found myself doing. I am so grateful for you here. And we were told we only have an hour. So what we've decided to do, because I want to hear more of your story and I want to offer the opportunity for it. Molly's agreed to come on our podcast and we're going to do a much more in-depth bonus episode. So if you keep an eye out, we will have that episode. We're going to be talking and recording it very soon. And we can go more in depth with actual stories and more personal experience, but I'm really, really grateful for your voice, for your willingness to be here and to share. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it has been so powerful to sit here and listen to your story. But I think one of the messages that Sarah and I want to continue to put out there is that listening isn't enough. As we've been reminded today, we need to get loud. We need to get angry. Rage Becomes Her, that book that I had talked about earlier, offers this view of anger. Re-envisioned, anger can be the most feminine of virtues, compassionate, fierce, wise, and powerful. In this way, anger moves from debilitating to liberating. Angry women burn brighter than the sun. We're here in a place that showed the world in 2017 just how powerful angry women can be. And we can't stop now. Women as a whole have been more vocal about immigration issues, about sexual harassment, about climate change, about mass shootings. We know we can get angry. Stand up for yourselves and hold the communities that you are a part of accountable as well. 
And because we love concrete action steps so much, we put together a couple takeaways for this podcast, again, from Rage Become Sir today. So the first one is challenge binaries. In particular, we're talking about the public-private one. Because according to Professor Ida Hurtado, in the United States, white women were the most likely to be sequestered in an idealized feminine domestic sphere. And it was a private sphere that was in defense of the rights of white men, off limits to the public or the government sphere. For non-white women, the government has always been more invasive, freely interfering with their bodies, their private lives, and personal decisions. And we just talked about this in the episode that we recorded that will be coming out soon on reproductive rights and the difference especially historically in this country between women of color and white women in that sphere. There is no such thing, explains Hurtado, as a private sphere for people of color, except that which they manage to create and protect in an otherwise hostile environment. We need to bridge those and be loud in public spaces in a way that promotes all women. Don't let another binary, which is male and female, continue to control the narrative that women's anger and women's rights are somehow less than. The second action step is to trust other women. Sometimes we really can be our worst enemies. We can't be mean to each other anymore. I mean, that's just being a nice, like just stop that, right? When other women are angry, are you critical? When your friends are angry, what do you do? I mean, we can be even more judgmental about other women breaking the rules than when men do it. You know, there are stereotypes. There are stereotypes of the angry black woman, the fiery Latina, the sad Asian girl. Understand those. Be familiar with the stereotypes and consider how women navigate their stereotypes, how you might not have to have that stereotype that you're fighting against. Give people leeway to do what they need to do and find empathy within you. Consider whether you hold the woman you know to a different or higher standard than you do the men. And remember, we need to be allies. This has to be about all women. And one more, accept a desire for power. And power just happens to be my 2020 word, by the way. We have power in our actions and our voices. We need to be standing up and speaking out and sharing the stories, naming the names of the people who may need allies to help with that. We rise by lifting others, as our shirts say. Clearly, we believe that. And one more time, let's get loud. This is our time to make a difference and to show that we aren't white women or black women or Asian women or Latinas or multiracial or whatever types of women. We are women first. Everything else should come after. Thank you so much for coming out today, for listening. Our hope is that when you leave this room, you have one new perspective that you will take with you to the voting booth on November 3rd this year. Let's work together as a united front for women and to be the change that we want to see. Thanks again. Thank you. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at DearWhiteWomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 